On the Pilot TV podcast this week, things are getting testy back in the 80s in Dirty John Season 2. We're joining Jason Sudeikis for a show about an American coach brought in to run a British team in a show that is definitely not first team, but rather Apple's Ted Lasso. And we're smashing tarantulas in Diane Morgan's new BBC comedy, Mandy. I'm James Dyer and welcome to the Pilot TV podcast, a show that has spent last week in a living hell. Due to what I can only assume was a malfunction with our mitochondrial spore drive, after last week's discussion of alternate realities, this show has found itself trapped in one. A shadowy, twisted reflection of the world we know, in which down is up, right is left, and chaos has twisted events into a dark parody of our own reality. The reason I know this, of course, is because Stath Let's Fucking Flats won a BAFTA last week, beating, let's see, Catastrophe, Derry Girls, and fucking Fleabag. And I, quite frankly, don't want to live in any plane of existence this twisted. Still, still, at the very least, I am not here alone. As with all mirror universes, evil incarnations of the people I know turn up almost instantly, regardless of how unlikely that might seem from a statistical standpoint. And first up, a man who hates all shows, despises all series, and never has a nice word to say about anything. He surrounds himself, of course, with the least famous people he can find and takes them to watch football matches featuring his beloved Spurs. <laughs> it's Evil Boyd Watson. Wow. wow, how dare you? How dare Hello, you use that word? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm still recovering from Arsenal's FA Cup final triumph last Saturday, actually. And I am, I, I, I do love everything, and I'm actually happy that Stuff Let's Flats, let's flats won that BAFTA. Well, we'll... We'll get into that egregious injustice very, very soon. But also with us is the mistress of feel-good drama, a lover of all things bright and fluffy, hailing from an aristocratic family somewhere down south. It's good Terry White! How much time alone have you spent this week? I mean, a lot. A and, lot. And is this also yeah. not the moment to mention that not only did um, Stace Let's Flats win a scripted comedy, that... That Jamie Dimitri also won male performance in my comedy program. So two <sighs> BAFTAs, uh, I should point out. Yeah, yeah. And he won a third, he won, won in the craft awards for the writing as well. So yeah, there you go. Triple, it's a triple. I mean, look, okay, look, now is as good a time as any. Let's get into this. So, so the BAFTAs happened. Boyd, you voted in it, which I can only assume is the reason why it's such an absolute <laughs> shit show. So Charming. Now, it is it is long held that I do not like Stath Let's Flats. I watched one episode and didn't find it funny, so therefore it's clearly terrible. But but honestly, honestly, do we I mean over the likes of Fleabag right. and Let me Derry just explain Guns. how it works because it's not like every BAFTA member votes. It's not like the film awards. So every category it has a separate jury. So I was on the jury this year for female uh, performance in a comedy, won brilliantly by Sean Clifford from Fleabag, and I think we can all say that was, that was the right choice. I'm, I'm on board we're all with very that. good in our jury. Um, but it is juries of like 10, 11, 12, 13 people, and and I and I've been doing this for a few years now, and I have to say that on the these juries. People sway other people, and you know, I think the reason why stuff that's flat swan though is it, this. This this came up in my jury actually. That I think uh, you know, uh, this most of the people who vote for these things are comedy peers, you know, in the comedy categories or actors, actors in the acting categories, etc. So they are the creative peers of the people nominated. And I have to say, I think there's a movement, a swing away from. Um, comedy that isn't that funny, in quotes, that some people think, you know, some people might say that catastrophe, fleabag, et cetera, those comedies that have very big, powerful, emotional and dramatic elements to them and are borderline comedy dramas for some, like, I think there's almost a little bit of a feeling that actually in comedy categories in these things, that out and out, flat out funny 
deserves more kudos than those other types of shows. And that's my guess. I wasn't and in yet, the room. Statlet Flats won. Very good. Flats. Whatever you think of it, Statlet Flats. I think for 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 comedy fans, i.e., not you, is a re- is a flat out very very funny very accomplished show that tries above all else to make you laugh and that is not necessarily what the other shows in that category are doing they're doing i mean you know obviously they're brilliant but I, my guess is I, I say i wasn't in the room but i do think there's that mm. is that is a slight thing that's happening in in the world of uh, award giving Boy, do you think there could also be a, a point that, you know, things like Fleabag and Catal- actually all the other ones in that category, including Dairy yeah. Girls, yeah. you know, Twitter loves them, The Guardian yeah. loves them, they're seen as, as intellectually superior. Do you think there's a bit of a backlash against that potentially and something like um, Statlet's Flats, which is broader, can we say, yeah. James, um, <laughs> that, that, that actually um, there's a sense that those things should be recognised as much as... As much as Fleabag and Derry Girls, yeah, maybe. And course, yeah, I mean they're very strict. You're not allowed to take those things into account in these yeah. things. I mean they're incredibly strict at BAFTA. Like they're literally, you're only allowed to to to. You're not allowed to talk about you know oh this has got this has got so many awards already and things like that. You're really only supposed to look at the quality of the thing you are giving the award to. You're discussing. So, but yeah, I think I I think almost subconsciously I think those things those things do come up. Yeah, those things do arise. Because here's the Definitely. thing, right, is I watched, so um, without wanting to skip to what I watched this week, and I only I did only watch one thing, which was the entire first season of Staff Let's Flats. Because um, if I remember rightly, when it came to us reviewing the second, was it James watched one, but we weren't reviewing it? And neither and of you did, because I wasn't, wasn't supposed, supposed to. to. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, do you know what? Like, I'm going to... I'm going to watch this and I'm going to see. And I did watch. I got up at 6 a.m. with my baby and I sat and watched an entire first season before the rest of the world woke up. And here's the thing. It is, I get the humour. He's amazing, Jamie. His mm. sister, who's played by his real-life sister, um, Natasia, is absolutely fucking incredible. But you use the word quality, right, which I think mm. is a really important word. And I think... It is funny. I totally get the audience that would really love that. I get exactly what it's doing. But when you kind of look at the writing and and the performances and stuff like that, I just still feel like on a quality level, it's it just sits so uncomfortably next to those other things in terms of saying that it is, you know, superior to them and it actually, you know, deserves to win that category because when you think of and it is a different type of craft I think than those emotional kind of as you say almost dramas really which have comedy in them this is a straight out more classic Mm. comedy yeah um so I did I did appreciate it and I did enjoy it but it is I think it's it's almost like comparing apples and oranges. Or is, what's the saying? Apples and oranges? Apples and pears? Pears and peaches? No, it is apples, apples and oranges. oranges. Pears and peaches is good. You compare whichever two yeah. fruits you like. It's like pears and peaches, right? Because it's almost like they're different things. <laughs> to your yeah. point, I suppose, which Stathlet's Flats feels like a very different thing to those three other things. Yeah. Yeah. And judging them al- alongside each other just seems a bit weird to me. But what else are you going to do? Because they can't be like a... 
uh, yeah. drama comedy um, category. Exactly. In, in, I would say, well, I think I, I know what you mean. I, what I would say is, that, so the series two for which it won the award is a step up. I think. I, I think mm. it's a pretty big step up from series one. And actually, funnily enough, one of the things that makes it, um, I think, better. I mean, I like series one, but series two, I did love a lot more. It does hit emotional beats, funnily enough, um, more than I think the series one is, as you get to know the characters more. And I feel there's a confidence about series two that is definitely um, something much much more accomplished than series one so i think again that's partly why it won but yeah i mean it's always going to be controversial but bafta always makes always does strange things with the juries like remember fleabag has not won a bafta for it as in itself yet so series one didn't win it was beaten by sally just, forever which we loved on this podcast but you know which is yeah, great but right, but you know <laughs> history will will you know will note that fleabag did not win the main bafta <laughs> for which it's nominated and that is interesting yeah it's it's an odd system. It's a very, I mean, I, I it's strong. I would say I don't know if it's better or worse, but I think looking on balance, it's probably worse. But I don't um, know. It's more interesting than the, the film awards. The thing people complain about: BAFTA can't win because the film awards, which are voted for by thousands and thousands of people, mm. um, you know, do do the thing where not enough non-white people yeah. are nominated, and that's an issue that BAFTA's grappling with. In the at least in the TV awards, they are much more representative of. Well, how do they pick the juries? They're picked by. T- Teams of people at BAFTA who kind pickers. of try and, uh, pickers, yeah, who, <laughs> who do make sure the juries are representative and are you know balanced in quotes. So that's partly you know the job of the people. Speaking of balance, Boyd, so you've been on BAFTA juries for how many years running? Oh, probably on and off like ten years or so, maybe. Can't help feeling the lack of balance in neither Terry nor I have invited to be <laughs> it's on only this jury. It's only a of time. I, I feel the comedy category in particular is missing mm. me oh on that god. jury. Oh, my God. You do you being... know what? If somebody at BAFTA had anything about them, which they do, yeah. I, I should just say they're very lovely people at BAFTA, especially they've got a new chair, um, Chris, who is amazing and I think is doing incredible work already. But can I just say James Dyer on a comedy jury yeah. would be fucking incredible. inspired. I mean, yeah. you know, ruin the credibility of the BAFTA awards for the rest of history, but who cares? Because it would be genius. That in itself. <laughs> should be a show is James Dyer judging the comedy categories at the BAFTA somebody commission this show please yeah, and winning the BAFTA for Best Comedy 2021, The Expanse. Yeah. <laughs> well, Smith did write that episode of Inside Number Nine, which is about a BAFTA oh, jury. Yeah. yeah, and he was in a jury with me uh, the year before before the, that went out. And there is one of the characters on that episode of Inside Number Nine. Let's remember, is an annoying journalist. <laughs> so you know, it's a, a bald, bespectacled. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a woman. They change, they, they, they change the gender. But it's just clearly you. me. Yeah. <laughs> Should we should we run through the BAFTAs? It is a week old, but fuck it, we didn't cover it yeah. last week. So in the leading actress category, Glenda Jackson for Elizabeth is missing, and you know, fair yeah. play to her. I think yeah. you know, Saran Jones was in there, Samantha Morton was in there, Jodie Combe was in there, all great performances. But Glenda Jackson nailed it in that one. Yeah. I think I have no no issues with that particular one uh, at all. Leading actor Jared Harris for Chernobyl again, not a huge shock there, beating out Stephen Graham, Takahiro Hira, and uh, Callum Turner. Sporting actress Naomi Aki for End of the Fucking World. I never finished that season of End of the Fucking World. I must no. get to that. It's really actually. good. Really good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, supporting actor Will Sharp for Giri Hadji. Entertainment performance. We're going to skip over because that's not a proper category. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I love Mike Gilligan and I, yeah, I, I was really thrilled to see yeah. that. I think that was Same. absolutely the fucking right yeah. decision. Yeah, he's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, love him. It, should, it comes no surprise you. No. I literally no, heard, heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. He what is entertainment? <laughs> yeah. Ent- I don't what? understand. 
I don't understand. <laughs> Male performance in a comedy program, Jamie Dimitri. Yes, moving on. Uh, no, to be fair, to be fair, to be fair, I will say that clearly, I it's just not my sense of humour. I, I, you know, I'm we sure know. he's great in it. Yeah. It's just, it's we not know. for me. That said, Nikuti Gatwa was robbed. Uh, female performance in the comedy program, Sean Clifford yeah. Fleabag. Yes, well deserved there, definitely. And um, so, best drama series, End of the Fucking World. Single drama was The Left Behind, which I haven't seen. But is that really good? I'm assuming uh, it's it just is, one of Yeah, it is good. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's not you know, you know, it's not a bundle of laughs, but yeah, yeah. Mm. That's the only one in that category I've not seen. Uh, Mini series Chernobyl, that was a shoe in, I think. Soap and continuing drama. <laughs> moving on. Continuing uh, <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> International when they see yeah, that us. Was, yes, that absolutely. Was that shadow yeah. of a doubt. Absolutely. Entertainment program. Moving on. <laughs> comedy entertainment. Moving on. Scripted comedy. Ah, oh, here we are. Starlets flats. Yes, indeed. Oh, features. What does it? What does it classify as a feature? It's Boy, kind of like a what formatted factual show. Really, I don't understand. Um, well, you know, like as opposed to um, you know, a documentary that's not particularly a format; it's just about a subject. Features is like a yes. you know, you come up with a format and you make the show. What one feature? Features I can't remember now. The misadventures oh, yeah. of, yeah. of so Ramesh. that's Ramesh Nathan. Yeah, that's a really fun show. Yeah, <laughs> have you heard of him? Oh my god, you haven't heard <laughs> no. of him, have you? No, incredible. What's wrong with you? <laughs> incredible. <laughs> this is not my television. No. I don't know what to tell you. But- but uh, do you not speak to people or, or like read magazines and I newspapers mean, or I, look at the I, internet? I tried very hard to do none <laughs> of those I might things. get your subscription to Heat. I might buy you for yeah. that. Yeah. 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 Perhaps that's the yeah. way forward. Uh, must see moments. Yes. Nessa yes. proposes to Smithy in Gavin and Stacey. The only Correct. category voted for by members of the public, James. Yes. 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 Anyway, yes. that's about the better. Yes. Uh, Factual series, Leaving Neverland, which yeah, you guys loved, bold, didn't you? That was the Michael Jackson documentary, which yeah. was incredible. And there was, there's, was, you know, yeah. there's an entire internet of crackpots who are furious about this program still. Yes. Who regularly attack anyone who mentions it, let alone gives it a fucking award. So this is yeah. the Michael Jackson. Yeah, yeah some yeah. of them found me on the internet when um, oh, I may have yeah. suggested that I, I liked the documentary and thought yeah. we raised some interesting points about Michael Jackson's behaviour. They, yeah. are, they, are they are out there and they are... Properly well. out there. Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My personal favourite category here, reality and constructed factual, uh, which is a brilliantly you know, sophisticated factual. way of referring to reality television. Yeah. Uh, winner was Race Across the World. Was this, was this show, a good thing, Boyd? James, by the way. You, I think even you, it is a fantastic show. You must have seen... It beats Celebrity Gogglebox. I don't know. Oh, well, I love Celebrity Gogglebox. I know, that's well, upsetting. But, <laughs> yeah, Race Across the World is, ext- is an incredible thing, yeah. Is it? Is it what it's, it sounds like? Um, duos. It's like six, five or six duos, including mother and son. You know, brothers, whatever. Um, and they and they arrive at a point, and they have. To, then in the last series, they have to travel across almost the whole of South America to reach a certain place over you know a five six week period. It's like an endurance test. They don't have any money. They don't have it. Well, they have a limited amount of money. They don't have any mobile phones or anything. It's a re- and it's beautifully made. It's a stunningly made thing. You might actually like it. Yeah. Just saying. Well, you know, you might I mean, not. it doesn't seem likely, oh, does it? God, it, is, it is incredible how they do that show. Okay. Okay. And that's broadly speaking it, because the others are all sport and stuff. Uh, apart from Idris Elba, who won yeah. a special BAFTA. So, yay, Idris. Yeah, Idris, yeah. And those were the BAFTAs. <laughs> Sorry. Right, right, right. So, other than the BAFTAs, what have we all been watching this week? I did mine. Staff Let's Flats. Oh, oh yeah. yes, you yeah. did. You've been watching Staff Let's Flats. Um, season. What have you been watching Staff do, Boyd? It's Friday as we're recording this, um, and I woke up quite early this morning to watch the start of season three of Selling Sunset, which I um, I think I mentioned it 
on this show before. Uh, like the season two arrived earlier this year, and it's become, I think it's safe to say, it's become an absolute phenomenon. Obviously, everyone except James uh, will be rushing to watch it. Um, it's a, it's, it is a constructed factual show, in fact, is what it is. It's half about... It's all about a um, real estate company, the Oppenheim Group, run by two bald buff brothers, uh, identical twins, who specialize in um, marketing lavish multi-million dollar properties on the Sunset Strip and the Hollywood Hills. And it's the their employees are all like women, um, kind of 20, 30-something women who I don't know how they manage to make sure they only employ a certain type of woman, but they do, let's put it that way. Um, there are no normal-looking women, is what I'm saying, in their in their team. And it's half about the those people, the employees, and their soap opera lives, kind of bitching about each other and um, kind of having kind of issues with each other's behavior constantly and half about these the selling and marketing and the people who own these lavish homes and already episode one which i managed to squeeze in this morning first thing has this unbelievably beautiful stunning home in the hollywood hills with like a putting green and the pool and the, and everything and the guy who owns it the most, one of the most interesting things about it is you find out about these people who own these six million dollar homes in hollywood and the guy who owns it is a software engineer <laughs> And I'm like, huh. how, how, how does this happen? You know, um, so it is an incredibly addictive. Um, everyone in my other job at Heat is obsessed with it. Um, it's an unbe- beautifully filmed, like look, stunning filming of these lavish houses. It's incredible show. So Selling Sunset on on um, Netflix is my new thing. And quickly to mention, as someone tweeted uh, me about us about earlier in the week, there's a Nicholas Anelka documentary. He was a footballer who played for Arsenal and myriad other teams. And that is absolutely brilliant. And that's also on Netflix. Okay, interesting. Well, what I have been watching, Boyd, this week is two things. First and foremost, I have watched all of Fort Salem, which of is, course. I think we can all agree, a shoe-in for next year's <laughs> BAFTAs. Uh, it is magnificent on every level. I really enjoyed this. This is the new warrior nun for me. Like, this this is good for what ails you, I'm saying. But, uh, yeah, loads of fun. Loads of fun, Fort Salem. They get into that. The, when the boy witches come, the warlocks come, and there's like a weird, like, it goes from aggressive fingering against the wall to just rampant orgy shagging all over campus, because apparently it enhances their powers yeah of course it does oh my god yes it's absolutely a thing that happens it's amazing and there's weird sort of frat boy antics in there and there's uh the infiltration of this other well i won't i won't spoil anything for those who have yet to experience the delights of fort salem but uh i do i do encourage it if you want a hit of ya nonsense this is absolutely the way to go and the other thing i've been watching boyd boyd boydy boyd is westworld season three now I have been putting this off for a very long time, mainly because you went on, a, I think, about a nine-minute tirade against it on this very podcast. So I was like, no, no, I'm not watching that. It's terrible. However, however, I went back to it on a whim, and I'm quite enjoying it so Where far. Where are you up to? I, I've watched, well, I've only watched three, so to I, be fair, I've yeah, got a few I to go. I like the first few episodes, yeah. I, 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 like, I like them, but then it gets tedious. You'll see. Okay, you okay. Because well, like, it it's quite dense already, yeah. where you're just like, I'm kind of following, but at a distance. Yeah. You know? like Because it's unclear who is who some of the time. Oh, my God. Tell me about it. Yeah, unclear. <laughs> like, slightly slightly like, unclear. Yeah. Slightly unclear. Who are you again? Yeah. I don't understand. And you're this person's body, but who's in there? I'm very puzzled by this and is this actual reality or is this oh, something else yeah um but but i'm feeling it at the moment i am feeling it so i'm gonna press on with this and i shall report back when i finished it it'd be interesting i think it was about episode four or five oh, where well. i started to lose it yeah I okay, enjoyed the first okay. two or three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, well, we'll see what happens. But uh, yes, my uh, my Westworld my Westworld watch will will proceed. 
Um, okay, shall we move on to a listener question? And this week's listener question comes from Naomi Berwin, and it is, what are the best and worst musical episodes slash moments in a TV series? Which I basically read as, here is another excuse for Terry to bang on about Buffy until we all just fall asleep. Terry, once more with feeling. Go for your life. We've talked about once more with feeling so many times on this very podcast. Um, and we all know that the best use of a musical episode is actually when they use song to really delve into some of the pressing emotional issues at the heart of the show, like the fact that Buffy was happy in heaven until you selfish motherfuckers ripped her back down to the hell that is living on earth. Anyway, so, you know, and it's all about the contrast between the, the seeming superficially in gaiety of the songs and the and the um, issues and the heart and the substance that they're really getting at. Blah, 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 blah. You've heard me do this a million times. <laughs> the, the only other, and I was thinking about this and I couldn't actually name, I was thinking of other musical episodes. I vaguely remember one on Ali McBeal that I think was badly done. I remember there was one in... Um, um, how I Met Your Mother. Um, the only really other one I remembered that I really loved, we actually talked about on Funny or Dire, which was the Scrubs episode, yes. which is yeah. a master class yeah. in the use of musical as a storytelling device. Um, and just like, and when it's done well, both of those episodes, I think both that and the Buffy episodes are two of the single best episodes of that and the ability to do that within a a show like that which is which is formatted and formulaic in many respects and then break to have one musical episode and when it's done properly it is and the way it can propel the plot along and characterization along i think is absolutely brilliant so they're my two and i couldn't in good conscience say that there were any others that i thought worked really well there are, I mean, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to defend the musical episode of Crazy Anatomy. Oh my for god, example. don't even get me started on that pile of shite. Yeah, and doesn't doesn't isn't this the one where someone is she she die, is that one where Callie dies? Is it in the music? No, or is it, or is it directly yeah, after that? Yes, is that the one after? Yes. So it's in the wake of this car yes. crash. Uh, does she die and like, or does she get paralysed? I can never remember what happens. Or one gets paralysed, <laughs> or someone loses her legs and someone else. I don't remember what happened. That was the, literally the last episode of Grey's I ever it was, watched. It was just it so. T- I just, I all I remember is just thinking this is so fucking tone deaf, and this is actually not how to to do a musical episode. And it's one of the things where the contrast we've just been talking about. Um, between the content and the and the execution through mu- musical song doesn't actually work. It's just really crap. Yes. Did you know? Did you know there's a musical episode of Oz? Yes. I was about. To, I was going to yeah. say Oz. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Which is yeah. deranged yeah. on every single level because yeah. it's just as upsetting and violent as all the of course. other ones. Yeah. So I couldn't remember yeah, seeing episode- this, and I'm now yeah. I'm desperate to go and find it and watch yeah. it. I remember watching yeah. it. It is the episode where they're putting on a variety show as well yeah. in the, in the prison. Yeah, and mm. the and but it's mainly the it's not entirely musical to be fair. But all the all the um, transitions that used to be when the, the guy Harold Perrineau, the actor, used to narrate them, and instead of that, you get musical interludes. Rita Moreno, of course, is a musical legend. Well, yeah, um, in it. Uh, but yeah, you West get J.K. Story. Simmons singing. Um, it is it is pretty incredible. Yeah. And does that count as an actual musical episode though? And I it's, mean, in its narration, I, yeah. right? Because the guy the, the narrator was in some contractual thing and yeah. couldn't get back to actually do the narration it, so it was a practical he was making the matrix reload yeah. so oh, well, how yeah. did, is that actually would we call that a musical I mean, episode I, I don't think it's entirely musical but i think i think i mean 
uh, for me, I, I think all the entirely musical ones are too annoying anyway. I'd rather have ones that are mostly musical, and uh, Oz is one of the best ones. I was saying, you watched the Transparent finale, didn't you, which was musical? Yeah, the Transparent finale, and I was going to say, because this question was best and worst, and Transparent music finale is one of the worst for me. I thought, <laughs> honestly, I love Transparent. I thought it was a fucking brilliant show. And one of the best things about Transparent was it was actually quite a kind of tightly written, you know, half hours of um comedy drama and each one was like a beautifully made little indie film and then for the finale for this finale it was like a bloated self-referential very pretentious musical thing and that was really irritating and the songs were fucking terrible i'm sorry and i hated it <laughs> so yeah wow that's my least favorite there was an ali McBeal musical do you remember this in season three i think that was again i think that was similar it was kind of using musical interludes but wasn't I would argue that that wasn't a full proper musical. And they also actually use musical when Billy, who was obviously Ali's childhood sweetheart, who then went on to marry somebody else, he was having a brain tumour, um, which is similar yes. to the, to the, um, the scrub treatment, mm. which is it's a manifestation of, of a condition that somebody's got. And, and there were musical moments with that. But I don't think that's also actually a musical episode. Well, there's a musical episode of Fringe called Brown Betty, which is a slightly weird one where Walter's sort of hallucinating and he sees everything as this sort of 1940s noir detective story. And I mean, the, the songs are a little intermittent. It's not all the way through, but uh, I seem to recall that being quite fun. Um, what else have we got on there? There's a, there's a musical Chicago Hope. I only watched a few episodes of Chicago Hope, so I have not seen that one myself. 70s show did a musical episode. Community did regional holiday music. That was good. What else do we have? I think I'm seeing Yes, I don't remember this. Apparently, there was a musical episode of Xena Warrior Princess, which I immediately now want to go and find. <laughs> but wow. uh, I don't recall having seen that particular episode. Apparently, there was one of the Flash. Again, don't watch the Arrowverse shows, but there was a Flash one called Duet, a Flash Supergirl musical crossover. Is there any British yeah. ones? I like that. I was trying to rack my brains. I know it's not exactly a British sensibility. It doesn't seem like a very British thing to but do. Wouldn't does you just it? have loved no. it if, like, The Office had had it suddenly got into like a musical yeah. episode where? Well, I mean, there is the best episode of The Office is where is, is where he sings his songs, where he sings "Free Love Freeway." That's him performing his nap songs. I know. Like, but it's as close as you'll get. But and the, and the, and the songs that he sings that, that is. I watched that episode again recently. They're repeating it on uh, Goal. I think it's fucking incredible. We love yeah, on right. the freeway <laughs> Exactly. Indeed. Exactly. Indeed. Um, I don't think I have seen how many. There's been talk of a Doctor Who one for years, yeah. but they've never done it. But see, and that I, feels like a show that should course, have had one. Yeah, but I think because it does, I feel like that's why they haven't. And that, yeah. I'm sure Stephen Moffat was asked about it once and his answer was so dismissive. It was hilarious. <laughs> it was literally like, nope, not going to happen. You know, absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> But we'll see. Uh, I'm assuming neither of you ever watched The Magicians based on the Lev Grossman books. You no, know, I did watch a couple of episodes of The Magicians. Yeah, it's it was, good, you know. Yeah, it was it's quite good. Good fun, I remember, yeah. Yeah. I watched the whole of the first season, and the second season I felt was a little bit patchy, and I never watched the third. Though apparently it does pick up again. I do need to uh, do need to get back on board with The Magicians, fact, but they had a musical episode. Yeah, a lot of the writers on The Magicians are British ex-Doctor Who writers, in fact. Oh, are they? So, yeah, there's a connection, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's good. It's good. It's fun. fun. It's kind of like a twisted Narnia story. But, uh, right, so there's no musical episode of EastEnders or anything that I should know about? No. I don't think so. No, no. That, would, rap, that would be a good. A rap Emma Dale. That would be good. I don't know. Statlet's Flats, for example, hasn't done an orchestral <laughs> version. No, an series episode. three. Series three. Yeah. There is, of course, okay. a rap on Succession, which is one of the greatest, most excruciating moments in TV history. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. 
hopefully, Naomi, that is the last time we will give Terry cause to talk about Once More With Feeling on this podcast, but I think we all know that isn't the case. However, I hope you enjoyed that. If anyone else has a question they would like to ask, then I would normally encourage you to throw it to me at James C. Dyer on Twitter or Instagram. However, however, for next week's show, I would suggest throwing them to Boyd or Terry. So feel free to do that instead. Shall we move on now to this week's news? And the big news this week is, of course, that we finally, finally have an air date for season two of A Discovery of Witches. Yes, Boyd, I know. Calm down. (laughs) Contain yourself. It's here. It's coming. We will see it on Sky on the 2nd of January 2021, assuming there is still a world for it to come back to. So that's quite exciting because it has been fucking forever since that show was on television. God, I wonder what what you were going to say there for a minute. Yeah. Um, I, I wasn't expecting that. You are you are its biggest fan, yeah. obviously. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> it, it is true. Like Helen constantly ribs me on Empire for having the sensibilities of a teenage girl, but I do love my YA drama, as it can be said. Mm. And the discovery of witches was loads of fun. So yes, more of that, please. Very more excited. exciting date announcement was um, that HBO announced the October twenty fifth premiere for The Undoing, which was the um, very incredibly exciting show that was supposed to go out in May originally, and because of the virus, is delayed. So that's the Nicole Kidman, Hugh Grant series. Um, um, uh, about she's a successful therapist. She discovers her husband's wrapped up in the death of another woman. Um, and it's produced by David E. Kelly. Susan Beard directed the whole thing. It's incredibly exciting. And they put there's a teaser trailer went out and it'll be on Sky the following day on Sky Atlantic, I believe, as well. So that that's genuinely exciting as opposed to yeah. your one. No, that is, I think what you mean, Sam, is that is also exciting, if not quite as exciting. Okay. Yes. Um, now, this will excite neither of you, but Craig Mazin has been talking about his upcoming adaptation of The Last of Us video game for HBO. And while he doesn't say anything, let's be honest, particularly groundbreaking, the fact that he's even talking about it excites me more than I can possibly tell you I must go on set of this show. Now, uh, he was basically talking about how they're going to expand. They're not going to change the narrative of the game. They're going to expand upon it, which is a complete non-quote. But like I say, any discussion of The Last of Us is amazing for me. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very stoked about this. I would say, honestly, probably more excited about this than any other show in development. You so this is no absolutely not this is my my all-time favorite video game and uh this is gonna be magnificent i've also heard some casting rumors which got me very excited as well which i can't i mean i'd hate to point out you know the track record in both film and tv of trying to adapt (laughs) video games but oh ye of little Uh faith terry this is Uh it this is what we've all been waiting for this is this is what will break the mold Uh do you know how many times i've written a stand first for empire that said (laughs) Finally, the video game adaptation that breaks the curse the video game adaptation. Spoiler, none of them have been any good. Um, So I got most excited this week about the Ratchet trailer. Um, Mm. So I don't know if you saw this. I superbly executed trailer. So obviously this is the origin story of Nurse Ratchet. From I think the show from, is in your viewing list, actually. Ah, well, there we go. What, what, I think you can watch it. Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Ryan Murphy. It's so Ryan Murphy. I mean... The way they've used um, the song over the top, the the visual execution. I mean, all of it. It looks absolutely fucking brilliant. Sarah Paulson is mm. incredible. And just from the little bit um, I've seen, and it, it focuses, this is eight episode series set in the late 40s, and it focuses on her actually arriving at the hospital and kind of how she got there and the weird experiments and treatments they're doing at this hospital. I mean, it looks, I have to say, I watched it three times on the trot before 7am it's incredible 
just incredible. I can't wait for it. What, why am I strangely unsurprised that you are totally into Ratchet, the TV series? <laughs> I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something there. Yeah. Just... Is it my time in the psychiatric ward? Or is it my love of complex, flawed female characters? I mean, you know, it's a toss-up, really, James. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. But it was interesting, that Tarantino, because I thought it had more of a horror vibe it than does. I was expecting. Much more yeah, American real... horror story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You could totally yeah. see that shared DNA because yeah. it was there was like weird body shock stuff and and yeah definite yeah. like and it, it's it seemed like it's really gonna lean into into that stuff yeah. it reminded me of yeah. um uh not many people saw this film okay now i can't remember what it's called james what was that film called <laughs> that we saw at Fox? i mean you might need to give me more <laughs> the, the, the film swiss Hospital weird. Oh co- yes, yeah, yes, with Jason Isaacs. Yes. Oh, it's, it's yeah. a cure for yeah. wellness. Cure for wellness. Yeah, <laughs> let me do that again. Dim- yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it, re- it actually no, leave all this no, in. It's yeah. brilliant. <laughs> it actually really reminded me of a cure for wellness, which was a film that I, I think wasn't seen enough when it was out a few years ago. The weird kind of aesthetic um, and the creepiness and the horror vibe and the otherworldliness of it, super stylized. Like yeah, it just. Get in my get in my eyes and in my face yeah. and in my brain, please. Wasn't I, I enjoyed a cure for wellness as well, but wasn't it like about three hours long? And I remember yes. I remember e- Jason Isaacs, even at the time, I feel was fairly like, you know, <laughs> amusing and amused about how fucking long that film yes, was. It was it was deranged. And just the it's just the thing is it, it was it was okay. And then the last act is just bonkers. Yeah. I oh, know. Yeah, that was my favourite act. <laughs> Great act. Great Final act. act. <laughs> Great third yeah. act. But I think you're right. I think leaning into the horror is the way to go there because the last last thing we want to see is a prequel redeeming Nurse Ratched. I just don't think anyone really wants well, that. I, yeah. I, I, well, taking yeah. that stuff too seriously almost and trying to, you know, create mm. the picture of this disturbed, damaged woman as much as I enjoy my dark, uh, grim realism. You kind of want that hyper-stylized, you know, weird, um, odd world that he's created that I think he, Ryan Murphy is perfectly placed to to create um so yeah i can't wait speaking of trailers did either of you watch raised by wolves the ridley scott yeah. show that's coming yeah. up that looks completely batshit as well it does yeah yeah and interestingly ridley scott's actually directed the first episode isn't it yes he has yeah, yeah. which is because he produces except produces loads of stuff yeah. on loads tv of stuff, but rarely if ever i think does he actually direct any of it so that's mm, quite but this, it looks pretty dense going yeah. by the trailer like it looks like it's hard sci-fi yeah. i'm really into it like this this feels like a show that i definitely want to see this is hard in september isn't it sci-fi <laughs> yeah. hi guys yes, I Kerry. hard sci-fi <laughs> This is my fellow hard sci-fi fans. As opposed to soft yeah, sci-fi. Yeah. Soft, floppy sci-fi. It is sci-fi. a genre. Warning, I don't know what to tell warning, you. Morning, guys. Hard sci-fi. Hard sci-fi. Don't come here with any of your soft sci-fi needs. Hard sci-fi only. Oh, God. Anyway, Raised by Wolves turns up. Not to be confused with the Catelyn Moran no, series. That's unfortunate. Uh, which is which not was not hard sci-fi. It's not that's hard sci-fi. sci-fi. That's, that's very, soft, very much yeah. soft sci-fi. Yeah. Very much soft sci-fi. Soft uh, sci-fi. Raised by Wolves turns up uh, in um, uh, where's it? Where's it air in the UK, boy? Do you know? No one's. It's a hoot. No one knows. Yeah. Uh, it's HBO, so it'll be Sky, won't it? Oh, okay, it'll be Sky, okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> but um, Brave <laughs> New World's on first, which it looked a bit similar to, in my opinion. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know yeah. where they're going to fit. Well, Brave New it. World is aired in the States, hasn't it? And it's supposed uh, to be good, but not it? great. Oh, okay. okay. Um, but I'm, I'm, I really want to see that as well. So I want to see Brave New World and want to see this. Oh, I mean, any hard it's sci-fi, an, it's really, It's an boy. exciting uh, season of hard sci-fi for you it coming is. up. 
It yeah. is indeed. Yeah. So these are good things that are coming. Something that isn't coming. And this, I was a little bit floored by, that Hulu have cancelled mm. High Fidelity. I knew you were saying that. Really gutting, because I saw that when I was in America, and it's fucking good. And it still hasn't come over here, which is no. deranged. No. But it's really, really good. And Zoe Kravitz is fantastic in it. And, I mean, as you would imagine, the soundtrack is on another level entirely. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm slightly baffled by why they've decided to pull the plug on that, to be honest. So there are 10 episodes of it, the only 10. And at some point, you know, hopefully we will get to sit here in the UK because it is really worth your time. Yeah, it's annoying. I remember like ages ago, there was there was stories that Hulu was going to set up a British version that we could just mm. watch, you know, but it hasn't happened. And I don't know. And there's loads of Hulu stuff that yeah, takes a crazy. long time to get here. It's yeah. fucking annoying. I mean, annoying. it'll probably turn up on Amazon or something yeah, eventually. Probably. But yeah. it's just like, I can't help feeling that if they had got off their asses and syndicated it earlier, it might have made enough money that they'd have considered doing a second season. So I feel they might have dropped the ball on this one. But any other news? Um, everyone was losing their mind a little bit that the, um, the Mandalorian was shown to be the most in-demand original show across new streaming services. So there were lots of like caveats within that. The, the, the main one, which is its new streaming series. So it was Apple TV+, Plus, Disney+, Plus, HBO Max and Peacock, which is obviously the NBC Universal one. Everybody is going, oh my God, look how in demand The Mandalorian was. Against what? Like we've talked a great deal about, you know, <laughs> the, maybe the, the lack of um, volume of content on Apple+. Plus. Um, so it, it's not massively surprising. And this was found by this third party um, measurement firm called Parrot Analytics. No kind of real detail on what they mean by in demand. And obviously Disney have never said how many viewers the Mandalorian specifically has received. And what does demand mean? Is that requests or searches? Like what does that actually cover? Um, but then it actually was really interesting because it's still miles behind Netflix, um, which is, you know, still far and away, um, has all the most in-demand shows. But we are due Mandalorian season two when, James? Yeah, I know you know uh, this. It's, it's October. I can't mm. remember exactly the date. But uh, yeah, psyched for Mando season two. <laughs> Mando. Mando. <laughs> what? He's called Mando. Is it hard sci-fi hard though, James? Sci-fi? Is it hard? No, yeah. no, no, it's no. not it's hard not sci-fi. Hard sci-fi. It's not, it, is, it is very much soft yeah. sci-fi. Yeah. <laughs> One might yeah. even describe it as space opera. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh, is that a subsection wow. of soft sci-fi or is that like it's a, a... No, it's a, it's, a, it's a sci-fi subgenre which Star Wars falls into, yes. Space, oh yes, that's space opera. Okay, soft sci-fi space opera. I'm just writing these down. Carry on. Hard sci-fi. <laughs> it's like rap in hard sci-fi or is... Operas is well, yeah. like well, so I suppose like hard sci-fi is the grime equivalent of we're okay. taking hip hop analogies. Got it. I have no idea if that's true. I just made that. Got up. It. Um, right. Okay. Speaking of hard sci-fi, let's move on to this week's reviews. Sci-fi comes no harder than Dirty John. So this <laughs> is the continuation of the series Dirty John, which no longer revolves around Eric Banner's character or indeed anyone named John. Uh, instead, Dirty John, the Betty Broderick story, tells the true story of Betty Broderick, played by Amanda Peet, uh, whose divorce from Daniel Broderick, played by Christian Slater, goes somewhat south when she puts a bullet in him. Uh, set back in 1986, this has all manner of big hair, pink suits, bulging shoulder pads, and all sorts but does it have enough to make up for the lack of johns terry well you know here's the biggest problem with this show exactly what you've just said which it makes no fucking sense why it's called (laughs) dirty john so we were talking about this over whatsapp you and boyd were and i was vaguely following along and then i came to watch it last night and i was like 
Hang on. So they're actually saying that this is now an anthology TV series, which was based on a podcast specifically about um, John Meehan, um, who, as we know, yeah. we did we reviewed season one on this we very did. podcast. We did. It was called Dirty John for a reason, because John Meehan was a dirty fucker who basically like <laughs> tricked loads of women he met on the internet. So I was like, couldn't get my head around it. I was like, why would, why, what, why, why? Nobody called John in this. People might be dirty, but there's no John. So I don't... Well, it's already an ugly Betty, so presumably they just an ugly Betty. It's so confusing. <laughs> Putting a colon and then going the Betty Broderick story doesn't make it any better. And weirdly, and maybe it's the period setting, maybe it's the fact it's a completely different story and doesn't really have anything in common with the first season apart from the fact um, that it's a, it's a delving into a real-life crime... They feel nothing like each other. So this one is very, um, it's, you know, those Channel 5 movies that come on in the middle of the day, you're off from work sick and you're on the couch and you're like, oh, I love those Channel 5 things. It's like a, a girl from college gets hazed and falls off the top of a bell tower and, you know, what happened to her and how did she end up on the bell tower? One of those kind of things, the way it's shot, the way it's made. And yet, you know, when you look at it, Amanda Peet and Christian Slater, like actual Christian Slater plays her <laughs> husband, who, as you rightly say, and this isn't a spoiler because this is a, a very well-known case, especially in America. And you find out in the first episode. And you find out at the end of the, at the, end of the <laughs> first episode. But True. yeah, the setup is she is a wife. She's been with her childhood sweetheart for years. They have a kid. They have family. And it opens with her kind of in a bit of a mess, actually. And, and it, it, I suppose one of the interesting things about it is the way they tease out the details, which is um, you don't meet them at the beginning of their relationship and see how it unravels. Mm. You meet them kind of hot in the action where she is seemingly crazy, in inverted commas, and can't accept the fact that they're no longer together and he wants a divorce. He somehow, for some reason, got the kids, primary custody of the kids. She then kind of does a couple of really out there things, which you think, oh, well, that's why he's got the kids because she's clearly, you know, not mentally unwell. There's an incredible scene where she gets put in a straitjacket on a front mm. lawn and it does stretch the bounds of credulity. I can never say this word, as we know. Credulity. Credulity at times because you're like... <laughs> And there's a weird kind of, and I don't know if it's because it's 80s, but in terms of the aesthetic, there's a weird, like, soft focus smudge lens thing going on. So when she's in the in the straitjacket, I'm like, is this a dream sequence or something? And it's it's really oh, it's really weird. And um, and so it makes this thing, which is the depiction of a real life event. She was convicted of murder for killing both her husband, her ex-husband, and his new wife. Make it makes it feel glossy and like a weird little soapy miniseries. So it's a really weird effect. I watched the first episode. Um, Christian Slater doesn't have a great deal to do initially. I think what they're trying mm. to set up is that, you know, he seems like the perfect husband in many respects. She seems like the crazy wife. And then there are a couple of incidents as the um, episode goes on, including one with a court case that she's a court date that she's not told about, where you realise maybe there's there's a more subtle manipulation going on. I this is fine. If I was home from work sick and I was on the couch and the story about the girl falling off the bell tower had finished, and this came on directly afterwards, then sure I'd leave it on. But this does not stand up to the quality of telly we're seeing these days and even when mm. you think about season one I think we talked about the fact that you know it was kind of like um 
pulpy and um, soapy and a bit OTT at times. But I think we thought there was some value in that in that first season. Connie Britton was amazing in that first season. This just feels like an old-fashioned true crime dramatisation to me. And it isn't helped by the fact it's got nothing in common with the first season. I'm not going to continue to watch it. Um, it's fine. They both, they're both incredible actors. No, thank you. It's funny, <laughs> isn't it? Because it feels to me that the problem they've got here is this in itself is just a less compelling story than the John Meehan story. It's just there's not... And there aren't that many moving parts to this. And they, they get around that by by drawing out the manner of the killing bit by bit, yeah. episode by episode, with flashbacks and testimonials and confessional segments. But, like, this feels like a movie of the week. And, in fact, it has been one. Like, I think, uh, is it uh, Meredith Baxter won an Emmy for this in 92? There was a TV movie, A Woman Scorn, the Betty Broderick story. But, ultimately, it's, it's a kind of a marriage falls apart. She goes a little bit off the rails and ends up killing her ex-husband. But there's not a great deal more to it. And I think this mainly... I think this this, this the main strength of this, I think, is Amanda Pete, who throws herself yes. full bore into this role, yes. holds nothing back, and goes completely berserk, which is great fun to watch. Uh, certainly early on, Slater doesn't have that much to do, but my bigger problem was that the kids are almost cardboard cutouts. Like You get no sense of who they are, and I, I don't know why that is, although I did read that it's been suggested that it might be partly to do with the fact they want to avoid lawsuits, because obviously these kids are very much still around. Yeah. But but you don't, and they're such an integral part of the story, because it's the kids' reactions to everything that's going on. That's where a lot of the drama lies. You know, what is the impact it's having on them? And I feel that they, they fade too much into the background. Uh, and we see it mainly from, from, from Betty's point of view. But yeah, I just, I like, Dirty John season one was, was an interesting story. This just feels a little bit flat yeah i mean i i hesitate to use the word but i quite enjoyed it on the level of as, as terry was saying it's it's got this 80s kind of dynasty dallas vibe about it visually um which i thought was quite i don't know quite interesting and i enjoy and you know it uses like 80s synth music you know there's clubbing scenes with oh Dr. my god Seagulls. yes yeah. that clubbing scene yeah. Yeah, it was hilarious. i did enjoy and that clubbing scene yeah so in the context of this story about you know abuse and coercion and murder and there are and i'd think that clubbing scene was partly played for laughs so i think they know what they're fucking doing mm. you know they're not it's no accident that clubbing scene was funny itself so it's a weird and then um the whole thing is pieced together in a bit in a very kind of um seemingly random way so mm. it, it flits about in time and and that carries on. So I watched episode two, um, and again, and you can so say you have a flashback to when she's a teenager and she's sent home from shooting some school where she's like shooting guns for a particular reason. I won't spoil it. And I have this thing about this type of show anyway, which is that with you know drama based on fact, and obviously there's a you know a title card comes up saying this is based on true story, but fiction. You know we we made up half of it. Fact, yeah. paraphrasing, but they did so. Uh, and I have this thing about this kind of show, and 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 it's I, I keep thinking, did that happen? Did this? Did she really get sent home from shooting practice for the reason you're telling us she did? And is, was her mother really like that to her in that particular context? And and if not, then what's the point? If like if if you're making stuff up to kind of, you know, show the psychology of this woman, 
um, and it didn't. If it, and if some of it didn't happen, which it painfully didn't, because they don't know, then I also feel like, what is the point of it apart from you know rehashing it? And as you say, in America, this is an iconic mm. story. This is a very very famous thing. Hardly any of it isn't known to anyone who kind of you know watched this play out in the media and in the news in America in the eighties. Um, so it feels pointless it just feels pointless apart from it being quite entertaining which is kind of in a way a bit sick because it's telling this really quite mm. distressing true story so and she's it, still yeah. in prison she's still in prison she's still in prison she was denied yeah. parole three years ago right right and i think in the end you know this is there's 10 episodes of eight sorry eight eight, episodes eight, of episodes. eight hours mm. of it and i'm sure in the end it will establish you know the, the reasons why she was driven to this extreme moment in her life but it's going to be a slog to get there, isn't it? I think, and I'm not sure. Mm. As I was saying, Doesn't I'm not need, sure I'm this prepared. is not a story that needs eight no. hours no. of no. And I always think, is are, you, are they going to show, I think what's changed in the last, say, 20, 30 years or whatever is sexual politics, right? And I think there were lots of famous, iconic cases like this in that time period, in the 80s and in the 90s. So I'm thinking about Amy Fisher. Um, mm. I'm thinking about this one. I'm thinking of Lorena Bobbitt and cases famous cases about women who killed and they were always presented as these women were either lolitas or they were psychos or and you know as time has moved on we've developed more understanding about domestic violence about coercive control about sexual manipulation i'm not saying all of these things are relevant to all of these cases but i think what's interesting is if you start to re-examine those things as with lorena bobbitt there was a documentary Hmm. which really took those domestic violence allegations she said against her husband more seriously and put it through a modern lens because the Amy Fisher, I remember there's a Drew Barrymore like telly movie, which was completely salacious and completely bought into that kind of, you know, sexy woman revenge thing. And I think if this was going to do that, it was going to examine that case through a modern perspective and what Boyd said, which is now all we understand about coercive control and about gaslighting and about and all of that, not in any way to justify anybody's crimes, but to examine um, the 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 problems that may have been at the heart of these marriages and, and these relationships and these dynamics between men and women. That I think is interesting. And I can't say that this doesn't go on to do that, but from mm. what I've seen in the first episode, it's played very quite straight and is played mm. as, you know, uh, as Boyd says, an entertaining kind of marriage breakup and then murder really. Mm. I want to see a documentary about it. Yeah, that yeah. I would, that I would, I would find fascinating, and and the Lorena documentary was I thought was fantastic, yes. and that because it was telling you the facts of the situation, played and told very very cleverly and smartly in a docu, and these are real things, and it was all real. This I feel is I don't know, yeah, it's, it's it doesn't feel quite right to me. But I think there is something, and this is a, a more general point, which is about, and I'm the last person to talk about this, but in the sense of true crime being pe played for entertainment, you know, mm. people are very quick to slam certain magazines that they think are, are being sensationalist about crimes and stuff like this. Telly, I think, is is walking some inst interesting ground, but also <laughs> at times I think some dodgy ground in terms of really ramping up the entertainment value in true crime stories for the sake of, of a show like this. And I think there is a bit of a sense of responsibility and morality and ethically, is that right? If you said she's still alive and in prison, but her kids are still out there who presumably have families of their own. And and I think, you know, to distance it from that doesn't make it, and to put in fictionalised 
attempts, you still have to be conscious that there are living people who this crime affected. Two people died. And so that's that. I think there's an interesting conversation to be had about that. This That element of it made it slightly uncomfortable for me. Dirty John, the original, was based on the podcast. And I heard the yeah. podcast first. And the podcast was great. But then watching, it, watching the series felt pointless. This time around, I know they've done a podcast after they made the drama, which, which maybe, may, you know, I might listen to the podcast. I'd almost rather listen to the podcast now than watch the rest of the series. Well, that is... Dirty John, the Betty Broderick story, completely free of John's, and it arrives on Netflix on Friday the 14th. Next up this week, we have Jason Sudeikis following in the footsteps of Will Arnett and hopping across the pond, leaving his American team behind to coach Premiership football, despite having barely even heard of the game. Now, this was a slightly odd one, actually. So this is actually a riff on a character he played in a bunch of ads he did for NBC Sports coverage of the Premier League. And somehow this has become spun out into a half-hour comedy for Apple. So in terms of sort of like, you know, the genesis of TV shows, this is quite an unusual one. Uh, But nevertheless, here it is. And Boyd, I'm going to ask you, as our resident football fan, is Ted Lasso, like the time Arsenal went 49 games unbeaten in the (laughs) 2003-2004 season, or when they lost 6-0 to Chelsea in March 2014? That's that's beautiful, yeah. Um, uh, Somewhere between the two is my answer. Um, uh, This is a weird one because, as you say, it's based on these these kind of little ads that he did, Jason Sudeikis, which were funny, actually. and, um, And they've made this series. And first of all, the cast for this show, right, is pretty incredible for you know, it's for it's a show that's a bit similar to the first team, as you mentioned, as yeah. you alluded to, um, which was which we reviewed, which I quite enjoyed. Um, but that the focus on that was the players, so a group of like three young players playing for a fictional Premier League team, rather than the manager. So this is slightly different in the sense that this is the focus is on him, this manager, and the whole idea of an American being brought in to manage a, an English Premier League team, which is extremely far fetched, I have to say, and it's very unlikely to happen. But there are reasons for it that play out. They're kind of devious reasons reasons why the chairwoman of the club brings him in. Um, but first, so you've got Te- Jason Sudeikis in, in the lead role. You've got Brett Goldstein as one of the players. So I love Brett Goldstein. He's a really funny British actor. Mm-hmm. You've got Hannah Waddingham as as the chairwoman. Rebecca, she's great. Juno Temple fucking pops up in, in a supporting role as an Essex, <laughs> a woman from Essex who's, in quotes, a wag, the girlfriend of one of the Premier League players. Um, Nick Mohammed, who's a brilliant, yeah. brilliantly funny guy, plays the kind of like sad kind of guy you don't really know what he does Nathan. in the club but he's like everyone ignores him until now until Jason Stegas Ted Lasso kind of takes him in hand and gets advice from him and he's a kind of very sweet character um, Toheeb Jimo, who played Anthony in Anthony that brilliant um, which we reviewed the other week is one of the footballers um, and is very funny so they've got this like really good cast um, gathered together for this fairly I have to say throwaway sitcom set in the world of football but i enjoyed it and what's the, the most surprising thing about it for me is and by the way people like brett goldstein are involved in the writing of it as well is that the character you would think that the character of this doofus american being brought over to uh manager english team and half of the comedy is about a fish out of water and the stuff he doesn't mm. know but actually it does go in a slightly unexpected direction which is he's a really likable smart guy beneath the surface of him not knowing what the fuck's going on and as time goes on the kind of the joke ends up being on everyone else and actually he's kind of manipulating them quite cleverly to do what he wants them to do and he may not know about british football but 
he still kind of is a pretty smart, likable. And it's kind of like one of the messages of it, I feel, is that you can take the reason why this Premier League team is in the shit and is not doing well and needs someone who's come in. It's because of a kind of toxic masculinity within yeah. the camp, which, of course, happens in football and all team sports dominated by men in the male team sports. And I feel it is there is a kind of quite interesting critique of that. And I like the fact that he's a likable, kind of almost in various cases, gentle guy. He has this relationship with his with his assistant, his first team coach, which is like really likable. They're both like just having a nice time, you know, living in this like almost B&B little places, having dinner together. It's quite gentle a lot of the time. And I kind of was surprised by that. It wasn't what I was expecting from this kind of show, from Jason Sudeikis. I, I have to say I rather enjoyed it. It's not, you know, it's not groundbreaking and it's not going to, it's not like going to, I don't think it's going to win any BAFTAs next year. Um, Although you never know. You never know. I don't think you'll be furious about it, but I I, I did enjoy it. He is likable. You're absolutely right. There's yeah. something incredibly charming and disarming about the way he plays this role. Um, and I think that, that was my main takeaway from it. I thought this isn't quite what I thought it would be because on paper, this is the first team, isn't it? Like yeah. it's just, it's exactly yeah. that, but it isn't like tonally it's different and he's a very different character to Will Arnott's character. Um, I, like I say, I know fucking nothing about football, but the one thing I got from this, you don't need to, to enjoy this. No. You know, it's entirely character led. Uh, and it goes without saying, I could watch Nick Mohammed in almost anything because oh, yeah. there's something he's about him. he's just so funny yeah um yeah I, I i i liked it a lot and i like the i like the idea that he's coming in you know doesn't he's this brash american goes into a press conference doesn't really know what's going on completely has no idea what to say doesn't know anything about football but he's not pretending that he does and he's quite mm. honest and just disarming about it. So it's like yeah you know I've got lots to learn don't really know anything about that <laughs> and he comes into this team which are full of absolute twats but yeah like it, it's it's funny it's disarming it's uh it's it's not what I would call like an essential watch but you can mm. do a lot worse do a lot worse, Terry. How did how did you you're, you're pulling a face? I'm well, sensing. I'm sensing things. I'm sensing said things. Likeable about fourteen times. Oh, right? I know how much and you love a likable character, Terry. Like, who gives a fuck? I mean, look. Here's the thing. For me, it was. It's like one one gag, and I think this worked as one gag. I how they've got a series out of it, I'm not really sure. There's yeah, there's the fish out of water stuff, UK versus UK, um, US stuff, masculinity in football. Um, I I just I thought that it was very thin right so i don't i've only seen episode one so i want to be really clear about that and maybe it gets loads better but it felt so thin and his character was nice but felt like wafer thin thin as a fag paper and there's a scene at the end of the first episode which is deliberately meant to add depth and backstory but just irritated me because it was like it'd just been plonked on this one bit of meaning and substance we're just going to chuck it in to try and build out his character you don't really get any proper backstory you don't really get any kind of emotional engagement or investment or anything like that Individually, you know, Nick Mohammed is, I agree with you, I think it's fantastic. Uh, uh, Juno Temple just popping up like that is incredible. You know, Hannah Waddingham slightly goes um, a little bit OTT as this vengeful owner, Rebecca taking um, taking revenge on her husband. It, you know, it's all kind of fine, but I, I, it felt very disposable to me and um, I can't imagine watching an entire series of this and as i say it just feels like one gag one little sketch you know basic idea but i yeah no so I didn't. this type of comedy to me tends to be the kind of comedy that has quite hard edges to characters which often i find i have difficult access points to them because i dislike everyone what i quite liked about this is it was very rounded in that it was just quite 
accessible because because he's so likable terry uh-huh. uh, because he is sort of cuddly and fun and you're on board with him and because this just about passes the bell end test uh you know this feels like quite low maintenance comedy that i could get on board with the kind of thing that i could watch while frankly doing other things but uh yeah is that, I, your, it's, is it's, that your but really come on guys is that your like benchmark is it something i can have on in the background while i'm doing something else isn't you know the point of the tv we talk about on this podcast and i understand that there's different tv for different things but really what we're talking about is stuff that you want to sit and actively watch as opposed to, well, you know, if I'm cooking my tea and doing the ironing and talking, you know, and talking to the next door neighbour about what's happening with the hedges and with the swallows in the back garden because I live in the country, then, you know, then it's fine in those circumstances. Come on. All right, fair enough. I carried on watching. I have to say, so th- I I watched the first episode on, on our previous service, and then I thought, oh well, yeah, I'm enjoying this. I'll carry on, and I ended up watching about four or five in a row. Quite, and so while doing other more, things, or just no, no, I wasn't doing other things. I was focused on it. So I find it quite addictive, actually. And funny enough, it's an American. It's 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 co-created, you know, by Bill Lawrence, creator of Scrubs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's an American that. show, mm. really, to all intents and purposes, with a lot of British talent involved. But it, I just. I just found it. I, I, oh God, I'm going to have to use. I'm going to try and avoid the L word. But as a show, I found it endearing. Okay. There you yes. go. It is endearing. It is endearing. Here's a th- here's a question for you though, which kind of blows my mind. Why do why do American coaches all call each other coach, 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 guy, coach? How are you doing, coach? I'm fine, coach. Yeah, what is that? Well, it happens in Friday Night Lights as well. So I'm assuming this is just a cultural thing they a, do in America. It's a culture thing. Here we call them boss. Like most Premier League managers, yeah, like football the boss. Managers. Yeah, have they call names. them boss. Yeah, but and funny enough, Mikel Arteta, the Arsenal manager, doesn't insist on being called boss, so they can call him Mikel. You see that because he's the future. He's the future of football but and like, possibly the world. Do the coach like do, they don't call each other boss? Like the different coaches? Um, probably yeah. The, his the the boss, the manager's assistant, will call him boss. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone will call him boss. Yeah, apart wow. from the owner. Yeah, speaks volumes about the state of football at the moment. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Ted Lasso <laughs> drops on Apple TV Plus on Friday the fourteenth. Last this week, we have Mandy, Diane Morgan's new comedy, and a show that comprehensively answers the question of who will be playing Terry in the adaptation of her memoir. (laughs) Morgan (laughs) plays the Mandy of the title in this 15-minute comedy. The official BBC synopsis describes as being about a woman who really, really wants a sofa and will stop at absolutely nothing to get it. In the first episode, she gets a job as a spider killer at the local banana factory and features several deaths, a fire, and a hair versus extractor fan scenario. Terry, was this any good and did you feel seen? <laughs> well, it's funny because it opens, um, one of the episodes opens on the shot of her eyeliner and <laughs> she has the exact eyeliner kind of uh, execution and hair that I used to have a few years ago when I maybe wasn't so well. And um, yeah, I was like, oh, that's a bit close to the bone. Um, but we should say that, you know, this is this is Diane Morgan directing, writing, starring, we all know her from Philomena Conk. Um, obviously in White and Motherland and Afterlife. We've talked a lot on this podcast about how much we really, really like her. Um, Incredibly funny. The best dry delivery going. Um, And this is interesting because it's six 15-minute episodes, Mm. right? And this started as an original short. So the sofa thing you're talking about, that, that very first short back from 2019 was all about her wanting to buy this sofa. And each of these episodes has a slightly kind of 
prosaic, small, I suppose, plot line, um, which is about, uh, and there's no kind of big overarching thing. You're not kind of going on a big journey with her. It's just these little episodes in her life. So I suppose what to say about Mandy is um, she is, uh, she's working class. She is a bit work shy at times. She always ends up in stupid situations. Um, and it was part of these shorts. I don't know if you remember, I banshied um, Braining Gear uh, a few weeks ago. And it was part of these shorts that the BBC commissioned. There was one by um, Lolly Adafepo as well, which was in there called Sorry, which I also watched this week and was hilarious. There were these brilliant shorts by these just exceptional female comedians. And this has now been commissioned. But interestingly, it's been commissioned as shorts. And I have to say, for me, the 15-minute length worked. I watched the first three episodes of this. So the first one was about her trying to find a job in the gig economy. Um, second one's about essentially a competitive friend who's played by Maxine Peake. Um, and the third one is about her renting out her flat on Airbnb. And they sound to Tony Way, by the way, from Afterlife. And this is full of incredible other names. So you've got... Michelle Greenidge, um, Tom Basden, and Tony Way, all from Afterlife. You've got Natalie Cassidy, Maxine Peake, Michael Spicer. They're not all in every episode, by the way. Each episode has a random surprise guest. So in the um, in the one in 2019, there was Carol Decker and Rick Edwards. Sean Ryder pops up as a ex-husband in one of these. It's pretty nuts. And the weird thing is, because I was tr- I watched three. And I didn't know if I liked it. Something about it made me uncomfortable. And I was reading about it and she said she's actually based on a real person. Yeah, I read She can't that. say who she is, but, you know, she said everything about her, the way she dresses, the way she does her hair and makeup, everything is is that woman. I really hope that woman doesn't watch it. Um, <laughs> and she'd been her person around the house. And when she'd been invited to do um, these shorts, she was like, oh, I'm, I know who I'm going to do. I'm going to do her. And, you know, she is from a Bolton background. I know she worked in a chippy and a telesales office before becoming a stand-up. And it, it does share something with Alma's Not Normal for me. The scenes in Job Centre, which are, are really similar, not just because they're northern female comedians, but the, it does share a lot of the same things. But it's incredibly different in that there isn't really any light and shade. Um, it's at times incredibly broad, but at times really weird and trippy and out there. And I was kind of uncomfortable because I was like, is it just taking the piss out of this woman and women like her? And is that okay? Because she doesn't particularly seem like a well-rounded human being and you don't get any backstory and there's no emotional um, substance to any of it. And then I kind of just gave into it because I was searching for this, you know, as we got with Alma's Not Normal, you got this beautiful relationship with her mother and her grandmother and you see the kind of you know this these female relationships and and the heartbreak at, at the middle of her story and all of this and you don't get that with Mandy Mandy it's this episode I'm going to end up working in a, a factory and and trying to kill tarantulas and this one I'm going to you know rent out my Airbnb and and then maybe or maybe not get married to the man who the Russian man who comes to rent it like it it's these situations per episode that crazy and out there and I have to say the 15 minute length which I was convinced I wouldn't like because why is it not half hour really really works because they're really tight each is self-contained and you go boom 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 and so I think the rhythm of it works brilliantly and once I'd kind of gone it's just stupid and funny and that's okay and it doesn't have to 
mean anything. I feel like we're going full cycle back to Boyd's initial point about the BAFTAs, right? And <laughs> comedy and comedy for the sake of just being funny, as opposed to trying to tell us a mm. compelling character arc and all of that. So I, the more I watched this, the more I got into it and understood what it was doing. And I think it's probably indicative of how comedy's changed. Script conscious comedy's changed that. I wanted it to have more. I wanted it to tell me a a story about her humanity and her relationships and her background. And is it okay just to take the piss out of somebody who's really that ridiculous? And I think it is, is where I got to. Mm. Is it is okay well, and it's really is... funny. Why does it have to have more yeah. substance? Yeah, well, she said pretty much the same thing. I think she said that she she sees a lot of people doing these kind of like downbeat naturalistic comedies and she wanted to do something, as she said, mad and silly because she craves silliness and she just wanted like an escapist little bite of humour. So she took this character, she bought all the clothes off eBay, which I think is hilarious. She said someone was having a clear out of their stuff and it was like, that is so mandy and bought all the clothes off eBay. And yeah, I just went nuts. And I think she said it turned out a little bit weirder <laughs> than she thought it would do. Um, but it does work. And I think you're absolutely right about the length as well mm. like 50 minutes seems perfect because this isn't really delving into you know any deep weighty character stuff and because it is funny and because each one is broadly speaking around a sort of single theme and situation 50 minutes works wonderfully um i, I thought this great i mean this isn't my sort of comedy that should come as no surprise to anyone but i yeah i thought this good she's clearly very good at this uh i thought there was a there was enough fun stuff in here that i didn't i did not dislike it at all and it was the highest accolade i could bestow upon a silly comedy <laughs> it's absolutely fucking hilarious i think it's i think it's uh, i honestly i made me laugh so much and i think it's it's absolutely her it's diane morgan if you listen, I listen i'm a big fan of um her she she does she did Ricky Gervais's podcast um, a couple of years ago with him quite a lot where it'd just be her and him just talking shit for about an hour, sometimes even an hour and a half. And they're brilliant together because I think what they've got a lot in common, I don't think like talking about, I, I also have that thing where is this okay? You know, is this okay? For, and not just her character, other characters are quite broadly painted and um, almost stereotypical. And yet I think she pulls back just about, just about from that. But in the end, it doesn't matter because it's fucking funny and she does not give a shit i think like in terms of like the is this okay element of it she is so confident in her in herself and in her comedy and in her observations that she's not worrying about the, the, all the kind of the political correctness of it etc i think that's brilliant it's like very freeing element to it i know you're right it's all about just being really really funny and the character like the way her mouth moves that is constantly <laughs> mouth lips twisted and the way she staggers around from place to place and just the visual gags that he let, the, in the pilot the sofa not fitting yeah, yeah. and being on wonky and her falling yeah. into, the, into each other it's just really funny the carelessness of her in the in the banana factory episode with the spiders it's just <laughs> hilarious and again in the in the vaccine peak episode they're both so fucking horrible to each other and where that want to spoil the ending it's a dark dark ending but it's absolutely hilarious and i agree it's perfect in these 15 minute um episodes because it's just like one kernel of an idea like a character you know a, a, a her doing this ridiculous job in the banana factory um and they're great and they sustain the 15 minutes perfectly but you don't need any more and so i, I i'm loving it and i think it is part of this of this movement yeah of being flat out funny comedy there's another show which i mentioned last week called semi-detached which is running on bbc2 with lee mack and i know you may, may not be big fans of lee mack but it's again it's a flat out farcical it's bringing fast back that show told in real time and it's got certain similarities grotesque kind of grotesque comedy 
comedy characters being really, really funny. And that's all. And that's it. I'm not worrying about anything else. And I think, but I think this is really, really brilliantly done. I love it. Absolutely love it. Mandy lands on BBC Two on Thursday, August the 13th at 9.30pm. Boyd, what else is out this week? Well, so there's some interesting stuff. Teenage Bounty Hunters, which was originally called Slutty Teenage Bounty Hunters. Which is in no Hunters. way a problematic TV title. <laughs> that, I well, thought you were joking. Is no, that, no. It's actually <laughs> no. called that. Yeah. It was originally going to be called that. And they changed it. Then they changed it. It's created by women, by the way, it, it, the whole thing. Um, well, have you not heard of internalised misogyny? Anyway, don't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Internalised misogyny. Go on, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, that was a good idea. Sorry, dogs can hear well, me. Well, but... they didn't. They, they, I mean, they did drop it. They did drop the oh, word slutty, to be fair. Yeah, but who, who would ever have that in the first place? Well, I think it was ironic. Yeah, that's all I can say. But never anyway, that never slut shame a teenage bounty hunter. That's all I'm saying. Indeed. That show arrives on Friday on Netflix and it's embargoed. We're not allowed to review it, but it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, unsaid stories. ITV is doing a lot of really interesting stuff. These are shorts they commissioned about Black Lives Matter all written and creative by uh, black creatives. And they've got incredible people in it. Papa Siedo's in one character, in one episode. Um, Pippa Bennett Warner. And they're all running Monday to Thursday at nine o'clock. Primetime ITV, short dramas about Black Lives Matter. This would not have happened, I don't know, nine months ago, six months ago. It's incredible how kind of this stuff is changing the world. And I think it's a really bold thing, brilliant thing for ITV to do. And we would have been reviewing it, wouldn't we, if we'd have had yes. access to the yes. episodes, yeah. They literally just filmed them like last week. Yeah. And they're still in the edit and they're going out almost like instantly, um, which I think is, again, is a really good thing to do. The Great Heist, it starts on Friday on Netflix as well. And that's like a money heist, Casa de Papel, which I've mentioned a lot. This is like a uh, another heist story. This is based on a true story um, about the, the attempted robbery of a bank in Colombia and is a series and it looks quite exciting from the trailer. Um, what else? I think that might be about it. Oh, there's this BBC Three show, yeah, I wanted to mention, which is called Good Trouble, which um, uh, is showing airing on BBC Three from Sunday. It, they're putting it all out there, and it's adapt. It's a spin-off from a show, a freeform show called The Fosters. Freeform is the channel that your favourite show's on, um, James. That you watch, you binged all of this week. Yes, they do have a lot of good. They do have a lot of good, a lot of good teen kind of youth. YA drama and this is Good Trouble has had really good reviews in America the show that it's spun off from The Fosters has been cancelled but this I think carries on and it's supposed to be really good so that is, might be worth checking out okay well that is the TV for this week what is our pick of the week people Mandy Mandy yeah, yeah it probably is to be honest yeah. yeah Mandy indeed right before we go now let's have a quick banshee who wishes to go first I will Go on. I would like to banshee undercover the 2016 six-part BBC drama starring the wonderful, the phenomenal, why isn't she on everything, Sophie Okonedo, uh, Adrian Lester, Dennis Haysbert, and it's a Peter Moffat drama. So I don't want to give too much away because there is a, a crucial part of the plot which essentially tells you everything, but she is playing a lawyer who's just about to become the first black director of public prosecution very happily married got this um loving husband in adrian lester they've got three kids they've got a dog they've got a house um lovely lovely some may say perfect life but essentially she discovers a very big secret about her husband which means he may have been keeping her in the dark about something significant for 20 years and that essentially plays out over that first season i never understood why this didn't continue i 
watched this at the time and I've watched it since and it, it came up in as a Netflix recommendation this week, which is why I'm banishing it. But she is particularly, they are phenomenal in this. Um, Sophie and Adrian together, their relationship is is brilliant. Um, and I remember at the time people talked about how radical it was to have, you know, this incredible, happy middle-class family and that family be black in this drama and, and that not be the kind of point of the drama and how important that representation was, um, which, you know, to be having that conversation just four years ago is quite sobering, but it is incredible, great performances, um, really good twisty turny plot. Heartily recommend it. You can nail it in one weekend. Uh, I'm picking uh, one that was rec- that was I was reminded of by someone on Twitter who I should who I should acknowledge Gary War W A R R on Twitter um, reminded me of Rubicon, um, which yes. was a yes. So we haven't done it before. No, though. we I have never the, done it I before. I checked the file. I checked the file. Um, and I remember it went on BBC Four here in the UK. It was an AMC show. Only survived one season mm. in 2010, but was really really good conspiracy thriller. Um, of the kind we reviewed um condor recently which is adapted from three days of the condor it's had has that quality to it the parallax view those 70s conspiracy theories which i love and actually this was a better version of that than condor itself um and it's it's uh, created by jason horwich and it starred um james badge dale as will travers who works he's a kind of analyst of patterns and he worked for an international think tank called the american policy institute which i think is real and the character um his wife and daughter were killed during 9-11 there's that whole that's his backstory and that's kind of plays out a lot but he basically starts to realize that he's part of a huge conspiracy to impact global events and it's a really interesting idea um it's it's really well made beautifully filmed i thought it was really compelling i mean it's quite it doesn't it's it's not as pasty um as i don't know home land for example but mm. i think it's a slow burn and really well done it really felt, felt authentic and it was a real shame that only lasted one season but it's after kind of it, the first episode did real as, really well as a premiere i think it aired in during mad men when mad men was finishing and did really well but then it, it, it viewers viewers dropped off mainly because it is it, it, the the pace is is deliberate as they say but i found it really compelling rubicon um and it's in fact streaming on netflix so yeah watch it good yes rubicon was good i enjoyed that a lot I thought that was great. I want to recommend one. I'm going to banshee a show which we will have all heard of. But I was on Twitter this week talking to Mark Walker, and he mentioned that this surely is right for a banshee because no other show, I think, has squandered its promise quite so magnificently as Tim Kring's Heroes. So this started back in 2006, only around for four seasons. But the first season of this back in 2006 was one of the best first seasons of any TV show I think I've seen. So much so that it just invaded the zeitgeist. It became so a phenomenon so this was around sort of the you know it's coming uh, on the footsteps of lost and it was when tv was really taking a sharp step up and heroes was enormous everyone was talking about it it was the big thing and that first season was really really good and tim kringer kind of seen it as you know dealing with a very big very rich ensemble cast so it had loads and loads of people in it from you know uh masioka to hayden panettiere to um kristen bell turned up in this and zachary quinto obviously as well and i like the way they put this together so the way they did it is each writer had a character and would write the scenes for their character and the surrounding scenes and then all of that material would be given to an episode writer so it was a very sort of egalitarian writers room they had um 
the problem this ran into is the first season was so good and that that concept Hayden Panettiere was the cheerleader who could who could uh, basically that plot of this thing I've mentioned the plot of it everyone should know anyway but it's, <laughs> it was, it's, a, it's a superhero it's based on comic book uh, um, mythology and the idea is that superpowers are manifesting in society so you get uh, um, Nathan Petrelli learns he can fly Peter Petrelli can adopt the powers of other people Hannah, Hayden Panettiere is a cheerleader who can heal from any injury uh, and has a weird line in home videos throwing herself off water towers uh, and then you have uh, Zachary Quinto as Cy this kind of malevolent superpowered individual who essentially kills other people to steal their powers Masioka teleports travels through time and he delivers this message save the cheerleader save the world and it's such a neat idea it's so brilliantly summed up and it had so much potential and then it all just fell off a cliff in season two and it's partly I think Kring's fault and partly not so when he pitched this show to the network he gave them every detail from the pilot episode and they went this sounds brilliant what happens in episode two and he went oh you have to watch it to find out and that first season, that feels like a parable for the first season, which was all set up, and I'm not sure he really had a payoff in mind. And then when you get into season two, he had sort of four segments of this season plan. But of course, the same writer strike that killed Pushing Daisies ultimately axed into this as well. And they only got to air 11 out of the 22 episodes. So they had to kill a number of storylines, rework a bunch of others. And it just didn't work. It felt at once truncated, but also a bit drawn out that certain elements of it just didn't didn't work and I think Kring was very aware of that and he apologised quite publicly for season two of this the unfortunate thing was instead of writing the ship seasons three and four were actually even worse and it just lost what I think made it work in the first place you become less interested in the characters the story became woollier um, and it really it was such a missed opportunity and he tried to address it uh, I think it was only a few years ago where they did Heroes Reborn where they tried to kind of go back to those characters and reignite the story and that didn't really work either so it's just yeah this for me is a I don't know if I call it a cautionary tale but it's one of the great uh, tv missed opportunities was heroes where this could have been an incredible phenomenon uh, and really you got one season of that and then not a lot you both must have watched heroes surely yeah, yeah I, it was on a, the Soft cover of the magazine i was editing at the time <laughs> disappointing is is what i remember yeah i remember yeah the bbc had a massive launch event mm. for it um with all the stars flown over from America and it was all very exciting. And, and it was, to start with, it was fantastic, but it did, I felt it did go off the rails. Very yeah. much but it so. has huge fans. It has a huge kind of cult following, doesn't it? Almost like religious yeah. fervor. Yeah. But it is interesting because I hadn't really, it was like such a, was one of those shows that was a definite turning point. It was mm. a real statement yeah. of intent about where TV was going. Mm. And Brian Fuller worked on the show. He was one of the writers mm. on the show. Like he came, right. when Pishing Daisies got cancelled, he came in and worked on some of the latter seasons. But it just, it didn't have its identity later on. Like it was so neat and so clear in its purpose. But sadly, it fell off a cliff and it was not the hero we needed or indeed the one we deserved. Right. That is it for this Evil Mirror Universe episode of the Pilot TV Podcast, and we hope it was a delight. As ever, if you've yet to bestow us with a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, then please do so, making sure to say nice things about Boyd while throwing Terry and I under the bus, as is apparently the fashion. Uh, you can follow us on social media at James C. Dyer, at Boyd Hilton, and at Terry underscore White. The show will be back next week with more hide and indeed soft sci-fi when there'll be another bunch of shows in discussion but quite frankly i don't care which ones as i have the week off but fret not because we will be rejoined by swindon's reckoning as beth webb makes her triumphant return to the podcast filling in for me during my absence terry it's okay i've asked her to bring her guitar so you're all good <laughs> Oh, we've missed guitar time. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I do maybe, have a song. Maybe, I have a new song. Well, I was going to say, us maybe... Out. Since, Play us out. 
since you're traitorously abandoning us next week, maybe I should, you should I play, should play, us play out a song. Okay. song. I'm going to try now. Some caveats. I have yet to master this one. Oh, Terry's left. Yeah, she can't stand it anymore. Sorry, I thought she'd get. I thought she was getting a tambourine or something. Are you, are you, so yes, yes. Are you getting the percussion? Is that what this is? Okay. All right. Now, bear in mind, this is a difficult one. So see if you know what this is. You almost certainly won't. Okay. I will try not to fuck it up, and I will do two hours. I can hear you typing, Terry. You are not listening to my performance. You wouldn't do this typing. in a fucking Eric Clapton gig, would you? <laughs> Eric Clapton. Good reference, man. Good yeah. reference. <laughs> that was the kid. Okay. <laughs> Hot chili peppers. Or is it Foo Fighters? Oh, yeah, it's a Foo Fighters. Oh, God, what is it? <laughs> you don't know what that is? No, but it's, it- I, know, I kind of. It's what it's it? wish you were here by Pink Floyd. Oh, oh, uh, mm. yeah. oh, there was. I thought initially it was do a dear, a female dear, may your drop of golden sun. Yes, I basically bought a guitar so I could start jamming to Sound of Music. That's that's my whole <laughs> thing here. Uh, yes, that was my attempt at Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here. So, oh, I think you, yeah. The um, if I can critique it for one minute, I don't think the uh, the, the I don't know what the pace. What would you call it? The pace of it. <laughs> Was slightly off. It yes, quite, I, that's, yeah. it has an unusual rhythm. Yeah, <laughs> so the rhythm. I can't the rhythm remember the exact name for it. The name for it is incredibly long and complicated. Yes, it has right. an unusual rhythm to it. Right. That's also a condensed version of it because I didn't think you'd particularly want the long drawn out version. No, because Terry was looking forward to it. From to memory, starts with about two minutes of white noise. Yeah, well, this is before, like a little riff yeah. that plays during the weird right. noise. Yes, right, right, right. So yeah. perhaps I should have chosen yeah. something. I, mean, I do love that song. I have to say, it's, right. clearly a, not enough to recognise it. No, well, I mean, I don't know if that's a reflection on you. It's almost certainly a reflection on my. <laughs> anyway, that's enough guitar for you for, for for the next few weeks. Anyway, we'll see if we'll break out the guitar again at some point in the future. Um, so I will be back week after next for our 100th episode of the podcast. <sighs> 100 episodes, the big centennial. Who'd have thought it, eh? Who'd have thought it? 100 no episodes of us three banging on about nonsense. Uh, that's pretty good going. Pretty good going indeed. And... Um, Terry will not be there for the 100th episode because she is having a week off, but we have subbed in a special guest. And to find out who that is, you'll have to tune in in two weeks' time. In the meantime, though, pilot out. See, my neighbour's having the extension built and I've got the doors open. I wonder if I should close them. Can you hear anything from my window? I shut my window because I'm in a sweltering... I know, I'm dying over here. Absolute dying, yeah. But you have your door open. Well, yeah, because I live in the country, oh, so there's okay. no sound. I live in the country. I live mm. in the country. You can't hear anything from else around. <laughs> Apart from maybe the hares and the swallows. Can you hear the swallows swimming, swimming in the sky? Swallows. <laughs> I don't know what voice that was. It was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> that may find its way into the outtakes, yeah. just so you know. Um, <laughs>